Welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. I can honestly say that every one of my guests has highlighted something new about the condition and how it affects us all, about myself, about life, and what's important in it. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum Kay lived with vascular dementia for her last 10 years. Her diagnosis came about in the wake of a terrible crisis. And when it did, my family and I knew nothing about the condition. Looking back, I think we'd been in denial about what might be wrong with mum. We were worried, frightened and overwhelmed. So we buried our heads in the sand for far too long, a scenario which is sadly all too common. Now though, through my writing and campaigning, I know so much more about this cruel condition. It is cruel, and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But I know now that it's possible to live a decent, if changed, life with dementia. I know it's down to society, to all of us, to help those with the condition live better, more fulfilled and satisfying lives. And I know that it's often the smallest things that make the most difference. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. Dementia teaches you this too. My guest this week is someone who knows firsthand the difference that other people's attitudes can make. When his wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's aged 56, she was working at Sainsbury's. He says that if they'd fired her then, he would have had to accept it, but they didn't. They bent over backwards to keep her on, even when the disease robbed her of many everyday skills. The Sainsbury's store in Harrow adapted her role, allowing her to continue with them for four and a half years after her diagnosis and providing her with what her family describe as a lifeline. The heartwarming story made news around the world when her son posted a tribute thread on Twitter. Sainsbury's were more than just an employer, he tweeted. They supported her like a family. They made her struggle lighter and brighter. They served as a reminder of her self-worth every day at a time when she was quite literally losing everything she once was. The Sainsbury's employee was Yvonne Salomon, who now lives in a care home. And my guest is her husband, Trevor. So, Trevor, a very warm welcome indeed to the fourth series of Well I Know Now. Thank you very much, Pippa. Lovely introduction. Well, first, how is Yvonne now? Because I know she went to live, correct me if I'm wrong, but in her care home in the spring of 2019. And of course, COVID struck a year later. So how did that work out for her and for you as a family? And as I said, how is she now? Well, the care home became an inevitability. I'd been looking after her on my own, quite comfortably, actually, for the best part of... Oh, it must have been nine years or so since we first spotted she had a problem. And the kids and I always said when the time came that I couldn't cope and it was in her best interest to be looked after professionally, we'd have to make alternative plans. And that time came at the very beginning of 2019 when her confusion was great and she also became doubly incontinent. And mm the caring aspect became 24 hours a day. And then you really, really struggle to just find any energy. Mm. So I took some time to look at a number of care homes, eventually whittled it down to one which I thought was just right for her. And she went into care on the 8th of May, 2019, and was happy from day one. And when I say happy, she never asked why she was there. She loved everything about the home. She was an integral member of the community there, still reasonably capable with some support. Mm. And then I fast forward to COVID and lockdown and no visitors and the staff behind masks and her deterioration accelerated dramatically. Mm. Mm. It may well have done anyway. And if we fast forward to today, to, to the present time, she's no longer verbal. She sometimes recognises me, sometimes doesn't. I went in to see her last week. She beamed when she saw me, which I thought was wonderful, and then spoiled everything by actually walking in the opposite direction. (laughs) And you know what? 
I've learned to laugh. I'm not laughing at her. I'm just yeah. I'm laughing at the situation yes, because it kind of gets me through it mm, uh, mm. because it's not her fault. It's just not her fault. Mm. And I find that laughter helps me and actually laughter helps her. So mm. she's in the later stages of Alzheimer's now, but physically, because she's young, uh, mm. she's actually pretty well. Mm. Mm. So you said she wasn't verbal anymore. Was she verbal before COVID? I mean, do you think the sort of imposed isolation and the masks and this sort of anonymity of it all, do you think that that uh, accelerated her or was she not verbal before then? No, she was verbal at the time mm. she went into the care home. You know, the words were all jumbled up. But she could certainly express herself. But, you know, it's impossible to answer your question. You know, was it COVID? Was it not COVID? COVID must have been a massive contributory factor to her uh, decline over the last 18 months. Mm, Because presumably you you weren't able to visit her. No, for long periods, not. Certainly for the first three or four months, almost nothing. And then as the care home gradually got to grips with the situation, I insisted, and I I use that word advisedly, Mm. that they ought to create time for all residents to have video calls, whether it be Skype or WhatsApp, or it doesn't really matter, FaceTime, Mm, mm. with their loved ones, because we were out of sight, therefore out of mind, particularly for those with dementia. So I think by June, July timeframe, I was able to see her and she was able to see me. And I had quite a shock because there was just that vacant look, just somebody completely lost. And that hadn't been there before? No, no. Up until the time of COVID, uh, whoever went in to see her, there was an excitement of a visitor, Mm. and particularly me and and the kids. But post-lockdown, as things started to open up, no, all of that had gone. Did she know still who you were before lockdown? Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely, Yeah. 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 And how often were you all sort of visiting her then before? Well, before lockdown, whenever we wanted. So the home is not very far from our family home. Mm. So I would pop in two or three times a week. But her best friends created a rotor so that at least once or twice a week, other people were going in. Then other members of the family were going. And she probably had more visitors than anybody else in the care home. Mm. And then from and that to nothing. I. Yes, and I suggested to her friends, because by then she was becoming, it was more difficult for people to engage with her. I always suggested to friends that they went in in pairs. Mm, mm. It it was much easier for them Mm, to deal mm. with the situation. So she was never short of visitors, never, ever. But then it literally stopped overnight. Mm, So tough. Let's face it, it was pretty dramatic for all of us. Yes, quite. Uh, So one can but imagine how difficult it was for somebody with dementia. Mm. You know, their world of confusion was even deeper. Absolutely. And you've got no way to explain that to them. I mean, it was very shocking, wasn't it? And brutal, really. Um, It really was. mm, mm. And you said, actually, you very quickly come on to one of the things that you know now, which is that your friends, yours and Yvonne's, were brilliant throughout all this. You decided to be honest, didn't you, very early on in the diagnosis? And I'd like you to talk bit about that because you wrote a script for Yvonne and she called everybody herself didn't she I mean a brave thing to do this is right at the beginning when she got the diagnosis. Friends were understandably speculating about what might be wrong with her Mm -hmm. and especially when one considers that from the day that I noticed there was a problem it took the best part of four years to get a diagnosis. Yeah that's cool. So over that time as she declined and as her capabilities diminished And as her whole persona changed, friends knew there was a problem. And I refused to speculate about what it could be because it could have been a whole raft of things. Mm. And I was pretty certain it was Alzheimer's because I'd seen it with my father. But Mm. from the moment that we got the diagnosis, we sat down. I said, we have to confront this. We have to deal with it. And we have to start by telling the people closest to us. So because she couldn't remember things, I wrote her a very simple script Mm -hmm. and she personally rang the closest members of the family and her best friends herself and told them what her diagnosis was. It was actually heartbreaking to listen to her have these calls, but I think it actually, it helped Mm. because friends then embraced 
a whole support infrastructure mm. by asking us what they could do to help. Mm. And therefore, I spent a lot of time. I don't like to use the word educating because it sounds a bit pompous, mm. but I invested my time in explaining to them how best they could interact with her. Mm. And their response was magnificent from even when she was at home, they would still come round at least twice a week on a rotor. So there was a rotor in existence and take her out. Mm. They did it for her, but they also did it for me because when she wasn't around, I had breathing time. Yeah. And I can tell you, as all carers will, mm, mm. you need a lot of that. And yes. sometimes, I mean, can you imagine people looking after anybody with dementia during lockdown? There was no escape. No, really, and really. So, mm. Mm. so it's brutal. So my friends who are carers looking after their spouses, mm. I don't know how they got through the last 18 months. Really mm. don't. Mm. Mm. I didn't have to deal with that. I had to deal with this inability to not see my wife at all for much of the time. And that was hard enough. Mm. So friends were wonderful. And every time there was an update on Yvonne, every time I realised that she was deteriorating to some extent, I passed on what that deterioration was and explained to them, you know, how they could they could get through it when they saw her. Mm. And they also never stopped inviting us around to their homes. Everything carried on mm. as it was before the diagnosis but with an understanding that, you know, please don't invite us around for dinner with six other people if mm, one can't mm, cope. Mm. You know, those sorts of things. Very interesting, though, Trevor, because so often I hear really sadly, you know, the reverse that even before a diagnosis, but when things were starting to go a bit pear-shaped with, with one or other of a couple, that then their friends sort of disappeared. And it's a bit like when there's a, a bereavement. And a lot of the time it's because people just don't know how to react to it. So I'm sure that by being open... They then knew what the situation was. Everybody knew what the situation was, and it was easier perhaps to deal with, whereas otherwise you're sort of tiptoeing around something. It's an elephant in the room, isn't it? It all becomes very awkward, and the way people deal with that is just not to go there, i.e. just yeah. not to see you. I agree, and um, I kind of expected that from a small number of friends. But then when I think about it, you know, Yvonne was very young. She was 53 when I noticed there was a problem, 56 when she was diagnosed. Most people of our age these days, they tend not to walk away from problems. They tend to embrace the problem. They tend to talk about it. Whereas my mother's generation, just by comparison, when my father had Alzheimer's, I would say that that generation did not know how to deal with it. And my mother, in particular, found it very difficult to reach out to people for help. She, she thought she could stoically do it on her own. So it's very, very different in terms of that generational no, approach. No, absolutely. That's ever. interesting because that's another thing, you know, you said you one of the things you, you knew now and that was to sort of almost look at how to be with your parents and then think, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be proactive about this. I'm not going to be on the back foot all the time. I'm going to be ahead of the curve here. It was something you'd seen go wrong with your parents. Well, I don't know whether it went wrong not exactly. Go, but, not go wrong. Yeah, but different. It, it, it's, yeah, their generation, my mother's generation dealt with it differently. So when my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in the late 1990s. My mother really, really struggled, not just to accept it, but to deal with it. Mm. So I often had to come to the rescue. So I was A, reacting mm. to mm. her request for help. Mm. So I was supporting her by reacting. But on reflection, I was very much the outsider looking in. And when you're the outsider looking in, it's a very different perspective of Alzheimer's as to when you're the insider looking out. Yeah. And I realised that there was so much I didn't know about Alzheimer's. Mm, mm. You know, what were the various stages? Mm. What would they look like? How could I deal with them? Mm. So I spent a lot of time researching through charities, actually, who publish an awful lot of information about yes, Alzheimer's. they do now, don't they? They do. So, you know, what would it look like? How could I deal with it? You know, just simple things. I didn't want to be chasing the game. I wanted to be ahead of the game. I think you made that point very clearly. Mm, mm. Um, and that's what I would say to anybody. Don't wait. It's an inexorable decline. So try and be ahead. Yeah. And had you done that before Yvonne's diagnosis or did you do it as you were going along? I didn't really do it before. I mean, my, my reading around the subject was very intermittent and quite light because for the first three or so years, the decline was very, very slow. You know, it started with a classic repetition and slight memory loss, but it wasn't too difficult to deal with. Mm. I wanted to know, you know, what would happen when she became very angry for no reason or when she would refuse to do things. 
how could I get her to wash when she wouldn't want to wash or she wouldn't want to get out of bed? You know, those were things that were way beyond my knowledge. And so I spent time to inform myself. That's very sort of perceptive of you and astute of you to do that, because in fact, I don't know if you've heard of admiral nurses, but they're specialist dementia nurses. But sometimes people, yeah. when they reach that pitch, and a lot of people find that the time has come for their partner to go into a care home when they can't persuade their partner to have a shower or do things like this. And they come to the end of their tether and they say, but I can't get him to get into the shower. And so now, you know, the whole hygiene problems come in and I've got to, he'll have to go to care. I don't want to do that yet. And an admiral nurse will come in and will then teach the family how to do what you very cleverly decided yourself. I need to know how to do this. This was through seeing what had happened with your parents, was it? Or are you naturally quite a sort of intuitive and inquisitive person? I'm a, absolutely. One aspect of it was seeing what happened to my father and how my mother struggled. Hmm. I mean, with the best will in the world, she was wonderful, my mum. But she was just out of her depth and it was tough. I didn't want to be out of my depth. I mean, there were times when I was beyond exasperated hmm. and hmm. Would, would confess to that. But I think the key thing for me was just to absorb as much as I could. And then if I found that I was out of my depth, then to educate myself more. You know, even in the care home, and I'll give you one example, and I wish I'd known this when Yvonne was still at home. Mm. You know, there were times then that I would struggle to get her to the toilet. Mm, mm. And then I went on a, on a session about a year ago, which dealt with, you know, problems with people with dementia. And one of them was getting people to go to the toilet or have a shower. Mm. And the little tip was... If you play them their favourite piece of music, which hmm. will relax them, mm. and you play it every single time you need them to go to the loo or have a shower, mm. nine times out of ten, they will passively go mm. along with what you want. Mm. And mm. I passed that tip on to the care home because they were struggling in this context with Yvonne. And guess what? They couldn't believe it worked. They didn't know. And these are not just carers. These are dementia-trained carers. They didn't know. No, but I think that's this sharing of knowledge from, you know, whoever you might be. And I think often it is actually a family carer because I think you've got so much invested in it, perhaps. But the opera singer Leslie Garrett said exactly the same to me. Her auntie Joan had dementia and Leslie being Leslie and a singer, she taught her auntie Joan to sort of sing in a certain way when she needed to brush her teeth. And so when she started to sing the song, there was almost a rhythm to it. And I can't remember now exactly how it went, and I'm absolutely hopeless at singing, but it was something like, you know, and now it's time to brush my teeth, to brush my teeth, or whatever, you know, quite a simple thing. And it would just, you know, click in Auntie Joan's brain, and she would do it, and she would kind of do it almost as she was singing. I mean, that can't be right if you're cleaning teeth, but you know what I mean? It is this triggers, and it is often music, because music does sort of hit the spots that others, other things don't. It does, it does. I love that story about uh, the teeth. It, music was very important to Yvonne. She loved music anyway. And um, when I used to take her to music for, I think it's called music for the memory or music for the brain mm. singing sessions. Mm. And she was mm. transformed in that mm. hour. Mm. Mm. And as soon as we left, she couldn't remember we'd been there. And when I saw the power of music, I recorded onto uh, her iPod uh, her hundreds of favourite pieces of music. And if I wanted to calm her down, I would just put her headphones on and she would just sit happily singing along to the music. Yes. Now she she can't do that either. Mm, mm, mm. So, so even that aspect has gone. But for a long, long time, it acted as something that was very soothing for her. Uh, and because it was soothing for her, yeah, it was soothing for me. Of course. No, you're sort of two sides of the same coin there, aren't you? <laughs> Um, yes, absolutely. You know, the, the family carer and the person with the dementia. You know, I sort of see that quite a lot. I've just had Grace Meadows from Music for Dementia on my podcast, actually. Um, and they've done terrific work in this field. Generally now, the amount of antipsychotic drugs being used in care homes and with people with dementia is really significantly reduced as a result of various different things. But quite a large part of it is, is the use of music to calm people. Yeah, you mentioned antipsychotic drugs. Yvonne's had a few episodes of very severe aggression in the last six months in particular, to the point where she was becoming a danger to other residents and to the staff. And reluctantly, the doctor had to put her on the antipsychotic medication. And within three or four days, she became like a zombie. Yes. 
I mean, she couldn't even lift her head up. And all credit to the carers and the GP. They said, we need to get her off this drug and wean her off it as soon as possible, which they've done now. And she's no longer on the drug. Mm. And she's much better, much more. She's not with it, but she's more alert, if I can put it that way. Yes. So these drugs are so powerful. They're, they're dangerously powerful. But I understand the need to use them mm. wisely. Mm. It's a very difficult one, isn't it? Because, of course, a care home has a lot of people's welfare to consider. I know. Mm. It's I very, know, I very agree. difficult. I wonder yeah, and how... I trust them. Mm. I trust mm. them to know what is the right thing to do. They always consult with me, mm. and I don't think I've ever been in a situation where I've disagreed with them. That's brilliant. And you, you took a long time, didn't you, to choose your care home? You told me this before, and it was interesting. Actually, a couple of aspects were interesting. One was that you didn't actually sort of tell Yvonne, and the other was that you said to your family that your decision would be the the final decision, even though you consulted them about it all. Just tell us about that, because it sounds a bit sort of dogmatic, but when you explained it to me, I thought I completely understand why you did that. And I think it goes to show how very individual each case of dementia is, and even different times within that person's dementia experiences will be different, and you will need to do different things at different times. It's just a very unpredictable and individual disease, isn't it, or set of diseases? It is indeed, although a lot of the traits are common. Mm. The thing that makes it different is the individual. You know, when, when you've been with somebody for 40 years, you know mm. what makes them tick. <laughs> so I had no qualms whatsoever about not discussing this with Yvonne. First of all, I didn't want to upset her. I didn't want her to turn around and say, I'm not going into a care home. I thought, what is the point? What, what, there is no point. Mm. I will know. It's not about putting somebody into a care home. I've heard people use this expression. I don't want to put my mum or my wife or my husband, dad, whoever. I don't want to put them in a care it's home. It's a horrible not, way of putting it, isn't it? it sounds you're, like you're, you're not putting them into a care them. home. Mm, mm. You're making a decision as to what is in their best interest in terms of their care. And if it's in their best interest, it will be also in yours as the carer. So I try and correct people because it's an expression that I really, really struggle with. When I realised that, as I said to you earlier, in Yvonne's best interest, a care home was was right for her, I did my research. I lined up six to go and visit based on CQC ratings, recommendations, and to a large extent, proximity to home, Mm. because I didn't want to be driving an hour to go and see her. I wanted Mm. to be able to go and see her whenever I wanted. Mm, I think proximity is Um, very important. I think it is, all things being equal. You quite, know, quite, If yeah. there wouldn't have been the right care home, then wouldn't we be would right. have pushed no. radius but it, further. But it is important, isn't it? It is. It is. It's very important. Thank goodness, of the six, I think four were horrendous. Even though they had good ratings, I had heart palpitations going into some of them. Mm. They were the classic care home that I remembered when I was a child going to see my great auntie in. They smelt and they were depressing and they were dark. And I couldn't do that to Yvonne. Mm. Well, you uh, said your children two... would never have visited her either, which I thought no, that was an interesting no, point have. you made. They wouldn't have. Well, they, they went to see my dad, grandpa, in a care home, and it was a lovely care home, but it, it frightened them yeah. to some extent. And I didn't want that memory to come mm. back to them, mm. Mm. either in terms of, of look and feel or smell. Mm. Mm. And so the one that I happened to really like the best was a relatively new build, which is very much like a little hotel. It's bright, it's airy, Mm. it's everything that the traditional care home that we can envisage when we close our eyes is not. Mm -hmm. And I thought, she's going to love this place. (laughs) And so what I did, I went to visit it. I told the kids where I was going. They still hadn't seen it. I then went to uh, have a long discussion with the staff about how best to get Yvonne into the home. And we arranged a plan. And um, I followed through on that plan. And the plan was, it was very simple. Bring her along one day anyway, because we know she likes bird feeders. You've told us she loves bird feeders. And bring her along on the basis that she's an expert in bird feeders and we need her advice about, you know, what bird feeder to put in our lovely garden. And, you know, one of the things I learned with somebody with Alzheimer's is you do have to use the word ruse sometimes. Mm. You don't necessarily have to tell them the whole truth because it's it's not in their best interests. So I took her along to the home for a visit and they made a big fuss of her and showed her the garden and she talked about bird feeders as best she could. And then we said on the day that she's coming in, 
I went in in the morning with the kids with all her stuff. Yvonne was at a day centre in the morning and then I took her along in the afternoon and I left her with the staff at that point and they said, oh, thanks for coming back, Yvonne. We're now going to buy the bird feeder that you were recommending and let's all go off to the local pet store. And that's what happened. Mm -hmm. They took her off to the local pet store. I went off with the kids Mm. and that was it. And Mm -hmm. I didn't go back for five days. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that was tough. And mm. uh, I found I I literally, I couldn't speak to anybody for a couple of days. It was just really, really difficult. Mm. But mm. Yvonne was very happy. And when I eventually did go in, she was delighted to see me. She didn't say, why am I here? What is this place? When, I'm, when am I coming home? She was already part of the community. And I you know, thank God for that because... Yeah. Mm. It would have been horrendous if it had been anything but that. But mm. that was just, in a way, a combination of luck and my decision to prepare myself as best I could, as far ahead as I could. Mm. You thought this all out very carefully, didn't you? How long had you been together? I took advice. Right. I took advice, Pippa. From? From the best people to give advice, which is another carer. <laughs> yeah, well well said. And I spoke mm. to a carer who said to me, I explained Yvonne's situation, she said, from what I can hear from you, you're doing all the right things, but mm. don't make the same mistake I made. I said, well, what was that mistake? She said, I waited too long to look at care homes. And by the time I needed to, I was that desperate. Mm. I would have taken the first care home because my husband was beyond aggressive. Mm. He was hurting me. Mm. And she said, don't wait because it's going to happen. Mm. Not mm. if, but when. So prepare yourself, find the right care home, and I listened to that advice. Yeah, interesting, because even in my little intro there, I sort of, it wasn't the same thing at all, but we certainly left things too late in my family and other things occurred, you know, and it was all, the whole thing was just too late. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a tendency, isn't there, to wait. And as you said I right at the beginning, that. you can completely understand that, but this disease goes, sure. one, goes one way, doesn't it? And uh, Yeah. So... Um, I understand why anybody would prevaricate, but this carer... You know, she was adamant. She said, for God's sake, don't wait like I did. Mm, so good to take advice from somebody who's that much further yep. down the line, isn't it's it? It's always the carers. It's the best people to advise are mm. other carers. Mm. And how long had you been together, you and Yvonne? Uh, since 1978. By the time she went into the care home, just short of 41 years. It's a long time, isn't it? And as you said, mm. you, you know what makes somebody tick after that length of time together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So you have to trust your own instincts, don't you, at that Very point, so. to, do, and, to do the best. And it, it helped hugely when the kids were very supportive and Yvonne's sister was very supportive. And if, if anything, they were probably pushing me mm. faster than I'd imagined mm. because they said, Dad, it's as much about you as it is about Mum. You know, we don't want you keeling over. And that's what often happens to carers, you know. Yeah, absolutely. They're so stressed mm. that they get ill, and I, I didn't want to do that. Mm, 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 mm. No, that, that's all very, very true. And so let's just go back. I know I, in my introduction, was saying we will get on to the wonderful, wonderful sort of uplifting story about Sainsbury's, but can I take you back? Because I'm always fascinated. I'm probably just a bit nosy. But, you know... <laughs> I want to sort of set the scene a bit, you know, when you met Yvonne, when you first met each other, and then what mm-hmm. you've gone on to do in your lives, because you've had different careers. I know, you know, I- Yvonne was a, a senior buyer, wasn't she, for Debenhams and... Yep. Um, British home stores. British home, so those sort of stores, all, yes. All, those... all, all the high street stores that no longer exist. Oh, that That's her career <laughs> legacy. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, you being a marketeer in the IT industry. But... Talk us through from when, you know, how old you were when you first met and you fell in love. And then I know you've got two grown up children now. And of course, it was Mm -hmm. your son who who did the tweet that set the whole Sainsbury story running. But take us right back to the very beginnings of your of your relationship. Oh, I remember it very clearly. I was running a social group because I was fed up of clubs and things. There was just nowhere to meet people. So I decided with a couple of other friends to set up a social group. And we always met at people's houses which meant that the numbers that we could allow in were restricted by the size of the house. So it was Mm -hmm. quite an intimate group of people. And I remember very clearly one day this ginger-haired 
young lady bounding in and the house was full. And I said, I'm really sorry, we can't let any more people in. She said, I've just got off a plane from Dublin. I've come here as fast as I could. Please don't throw me out. And I didn't because I felt so sorry for somebody who spent the afternoon traveling back from a business trip to Dublin just to be in this little social group. Mm. And so that's how we met. Okay. And how did it go from there? Like all relationships, it went up and down because they do. Um, But eventually it stayed up. (laughs) And um, Yvonne moved in with me, much to the great surprise of her very formal German parents. We were the classic I think, what did they call them in the 80s? Dinky couple, you know, double oh, yes, income, double no, kids. no kids. And where were you living? Yeah, in Harrow. Ironically, when we first got together and Yvonne moved into my flat, it is literally over the road from where the care home has been built. Oh, golly. So that's a circle. Yeah, that really is a circle. I mean, quite literally across the road. Gosh. Um, it couldn't be closer. That's rather lovely, so we lived isn't in it? Harrow. In a way. Yeah, it is in a way. So we lived in Harrow, then we moved into a house in Wembley, mm-hmm. and then we moved from Wembley to Pinner, and the kids followed in 1988 and uh, 1990. Mm. Yeah, so they're really quite grown up now. Yeah, they are. In fact, we got married three days after the hurricane. Quite a number of our guests oh, never yes. got to the wedding because yes. they were in streets with the trees still down. Yes, at the end of the and 80s. Yvonne... I remember that. Yep, that's right. And Yvonne's wedding dress had to be clipped to her back because it was still very windy three days after Mm, the hurricane. mm. I remember it very clearly. Mm, And mm. we were the first couple amongst all our friends to break with tradition. We wanted a simple wedding and we didn't want a big fuss because we'd been living together for so long anyway. Mm, mm. Uh, We got married at midday. Mm. We just had a big reception and lots of food and no, almost no formal speeches. Mm. And everybody got home in time to watch Tottenham play <laughs> Arsenal on the television at three o'clock. Brilliant. And that's all we wanted. <laughs> Great. And it's lasted all this time. And it's lasted all this time. Mm. And mm. we've had a lot of fun, a lot mm. of fun. Yvonne was very clear when the, the kids came along that she wanted to uh, stop working to be a full-time mum because she saw the upside of that. And we agreed that whatever sacrifices we had to make, it was probably in the kids' interests if we could do that. Mm. And then as soon as the kids were both at secondary school, Yvonne wanted to go back to work. And she said, look, retail has changed. I don't want to go back to retail. Mm. Um, I'm going to take myself off to college and study to be a bookkeeper because mm. she liked numbers. Mm. And uh, that's what she did. So she yes. became a bookkeeper. Yes. And meanwhile, you were sort of jet-setting a bit, weren't you? You were going around I the was. world. Mm. I was. My career had taken off and I was an international marketing director and I spent a lot of time, and it's very sad, in aeroplanes and hotels, Mm. Mm. uh, a lot of time away. But Yvonne was just the most capable person anywhere. There was nothing she couldn't do. Mm. But at home, I was a full-time hands-on dad. So Mm. I don't think the kids suffered. As they got older, the upside of dad going away was dad would bring them presents. Mm. And Mm. And then as they got even older they gave me a list of things they wanted. So they got the presents that they really actually were looking forward to. Mm, mm. So there were upsides to everything. And then Yvonne became a bookkeeper at a charity. And then while she was at the charity, that's when the first signs of Alzheimer's kicked in. Mm, mm, And mm. she used to lie in bed at night crying because she didn't want to go to work. Mm. She couldn't cope with spreadsheets and computer systems. And that's when she said to me one day, she said, I, I need a job where I can go to work. It's got to be a simple job. Mm. Uh, and I come home and I forget about work. Mm. And off she went to Sainsbury's for an interview. Did you think, she had no you, diagnosis. Were, was dementia on the horizon? Was it even a... It was. Mm-hmm. You know, it was on the horizon for sure. But she was still pretty capable, actually. And there was no medical condition to declare to Sainsbury's. And she got offered a job. She came and she said, oh, this is fantastic. I'm going to be an online picker. Mm-hmm. I said, what's an online picker? I mean, it seems strange now. She said, I'm going to go around the store and, and pick people's food orders and then they're going to be delivered to their houses. I mean, it's it's mainstream now, right? Mm, mm. But in those days, back in 2012, yes. it wasn't. Mm, mm. And she was very excited to get the job. So, But she must have been quite worried as well because she was still very young and she was having to recognise that things that she could do, she could no longer keep up with. Didn't that worry her? Or how did she take that? I'm not sure that it worried her because I think to a large extent in those early days, 
as my father was, she was in denial that there was a problem. That's very common. Oh, absolutely. Very, very common indeed. Absolutely. But she was, to a certain extent, she was in denial, but she was aware and willing enough to acknowledge it that she came out of one job and went into another that required less numerical skill. Yes, you're absolutely right. So to, to that extent... There were also excuses like, oh, I'm not sure I like the people I work with. There were, oh, okay. there were lots of peripheral mm-hmm. reasons mm-hmm. around it. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. core reason for sure was that she was meticulous and she was starting to make mistakes, which is very unlike Yvonne. Very. Yes, yes. So she started at Sainsbury's and I think within three months they called her in a couple of times because she wasn't doing the job quickly enough. And I thought, well, they're going to fire her. You know, They're going to find a reason under probation to get rid of her. Mm. But they didn't because she was never late for work. And she started at five in the morning and she packed those boxes meticulously. Mm. She just struggled with a handheld computer that told her what to do. Right. And she never stopped struggling with that. And they realised that as well. And they thought, actually, she's got a lot of good and positive mm. attributes. Mm. Let's give her less responsibility across the whole store and just give her a limited number of aisles to pick from. How brilliant, and that's what though. they did. How, how yeah. absolutely brilliant. And what a shame that lots of people, you know, lots Amazing. of other employers don't do that. Was this her direct manager? It was. It wasn't Sainsbury's. Because, you know, I'm a great believer that corporates have these tomes of corporate social responsibility and they do things and they interact with charities. But you and I know it's always down to your manager. It's mm-hmm. always absolutely. down to that human being that you work for and report to. Mm. And he was fantastic. And as the illness, I say the illness, it was still no diagnosis. Mm. Mm. She clearly was never really going to improve. Mm. But every time she was struggling, they kind of made it easier for her to do her job. Mm -hmm. And then if I fast forward from 2012 to 2013, when we got the diagnosis, which was four years since I'd first spotted a problem, Mm. we obviously had to declare the diagnosis to Sainsbury's. Why did you get the diagnosis then? Were you going back for regular checkups, or was she rather, or how did it come about well, that you've... we had, uh, I say had, because Yvonne's had to leave the surgery now. She's under the care of the care home GP. But our GP was wonderful. Mm. And I said to him privately, please, will you come over to the house? Let's find a reason for you to come to the house. Mm. And the reason... The reason that we gave Yvonne was the doctor's coming because the printer's not working at the surgery and he's going to de- personally deliver uh, a prescription for me to the house. Right. Another Which little ruse. Quite plausible. Uh, yeah, another mm-hmm. little ruse. Mm-hmm. But he was coming on the pretext to, to have a cup of tea with us and actually interact directly with Yvonne. Mm, to take a, to take a sort to of see. professional opinion. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And he left and then we spoke and he said, we need to get her properly assessed right. this time. Right. We'd had a false start, and uh, that's when we got the diagnosis. Right. But okay. we got it formally because she had a brain scan as well. And uh, so we went into Sainsbury's with that diagnosis, and I thought, well, pff, given everything that's happened in the last couple of years and how good they've been to her, now they know that they surely won't keep her. Mm. So my expectations were low because that's the sort of person I am. Nobody owes anybody anything. Why mm. should they keep mm. on? Mm. And the response was just very simple. Well, what can we do to help keep her working? It's amazing. Yeah. Astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. And the HR representative was also at this meeting as well as her manager. And um, I explained the diagnosis and I explained, you know, the journey of yes. Alzheimer's mm-hmm. to them. And they kept her working for another four and a half years. You said that they were partners with the Alzheimer's Society, Sainsbury. Mm-hmm. So had they had some formal dementia training, these staff? No, I don't think the local staff had, but I suspect it all happens at corporate head office, you know, and it doesn't necessarily filter out. It does sometimes, actually. I mean, they may have done. I don't think any of these people had. Right. It may have been that the manager's manager, who was a regional manager, might have had. But I don't think it filtered down to the store. I, I, I'm saying that, but I can't back it up. No, you may be right. Cause it was a while ago, wasn't it, as well, actually? I mean, yeah, mm. it was. Mm. It was. You know, and eventually she went from four hours a day to two hours a day to not working in the store on the shop floor, but doing a back office job, you know, cleaning the boxes. Cleaning that the they totes. All the food mm. in, the totes, yes. Mm. Mm. And she loved cleaning, so she thought this was brilliant. 
she was still employed, so she could still talk as well as she could about her working day to her friends. It's just brilliant, isn't it? So she had a real value yeah. and purpose and self-worth, as your son's yeah. tweet said. I mean, they were really yeah. giving her that self-worth. That's so important. They were. And so the manager and the HR manager then talked separately to the team of pickers and explained Yvonne's diagnosis, because most of them had never had any interaction with somebody with dementia. They were all very young. I mean, Yvonne was probably the oldest by 30 years, I think. Mm. And they kept a lookout for her and they looked after her as best they could. I mean, eventually the time came when she couldn't even find her way in or out of the store and then she became a liability. Uh, and at that point, I knew she had to stop working. Mm. 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 She'd already stopped driving. So I was driving her to work and I'd, I'd stopped working by then to look after her. It was more important for her to work yeah. than for me to work. I just wanted that stimulation, that that brain activity, even for a very menial job, was better than sitting at home vegetating. But there are so many aspects of this story that are wonderful because the the reaction, the response of those Sainsbury's people, the workforce around Yvonne, was wonderful. I mean, it's a shame we don't see it more, but that was really lovely. It's it's humanity at its best, isn't it? Looking out for oh, each other. Absolutely. But absolutely. also, but also, Trevor, you know, you sort of set it up. And then I thought when I was, you know, reading around you that the fact that you then, you gave up work, you know, had done just before then or whenever it was when she was working for Sainsbury's, you know, that's a big thing for you to have done as well. I mean, the love shown to Yvonne, um, I'd love to have met her before her Alzheimer's was so advanced because she must have been an incredible woman to provoke all this love. I mean... Uh... She was. I mean, she... When I look at the competency, the, her capabilities, mm. everything that she could do from she was the most amazing cook to she loved gardening and decorating and she made the children's fancy dress outfits, you know, for, for parties and things. There was literally nothing she couldn't do. And then she couldn't do anything. Mm. Nothing. Mm. And mm. that's the cruelty. That's one of the many cruelties of the disease. So, so she left Sainsbury's. It was in March 2018. 18. Mm. Yeah. And at that point, our son said, you know, we have to thank Sainsbury's. And he was a social media specialist. And he asked me if he could just tweet something, mm. which he wrote. And then I reviewed it. And he didn't mention the store. He didn't even mention Yvonne by her first name. He just referred to her as my mum. And it went viral. I mean, it was retweeted 2.3 million times globally. And then, and this was the bit that I, I loved, Yvonne became an accidental celebrity. Mm. So we, we had the press in the house. We had TV, TV crew in the house. And she loved it. <laughs> she didn't know what was going on. But it was the most, can you imagine yeah. you know, somebody with Alzheimer's who stopped working yeah. to then be a celebrity? Yeah. She was all over the newspapers and she yeah. still had something to tell her friends about. Absolutely. She still had it a sort of purpose. Was and, wonderful. Yeah. 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 So yeah. there was that purpose. Yeah, no, it, absolutely wonderful. And I know that because people might be wondering why, but um, you and I had this discussion before because I was asking you with my sort of journalist hat on, well, you know, who was it? And But you've made a decision and I completely respect it not to sort of, you're not naming specifically the care home and you didn't name specifically the manager in this because it would all have been overwhelming at the time. It, it, it would. And For them. You know, I had to put myself in the position of them. Mm. Mm. their job wasn't to be media stars no. or anything like that no. they they had jobs this yeah. would have been intrusive yes for us it was very different because i wanted our story yes to absolutely. potentially help other people yeah and oh, for employers yeah. to recognize subject to what that person was doing that there is still scope for that person to be a valued member of, of a team illustration of yeah. that isn't it i mean it's just yeah brilliant. and for the care home they're overwhelmed looking after people every day that they didn't want to be the center of media focus either mm, mm, mm. so i was very clear not to name unnecessarily mm. for us it was different mm. and i mean you've touched on it a bit there but you know that what you've done because you love Yvonne how's it been for you Trevor I mean since you sort of lost Yvonne in that she went to live away from you how has it been for you you know that's a question that I'm not asked very often there's no real upside but I can breathe mm. I'm mm. not stressed from that point of view my patients and I'm, I'm one of the most patient people probably that you'd ever meet 
but my patience was sorely tested at times yeah, in you the said later that, stages. That was the third thing you said to me you'd learned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and everybody says that, I'm, Trevor. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, leaving a room when someone is, is, is just completely out of control. That's the only way I could deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, <laughs> I think back to when I left home, I have a brother. My, I remember my mum saying, when you leave home, you can come back as often as you like. I don't want your dirty washing. I don't want you to come here and ask me to cook for you. So you're going to leave home self-sufficient. Mm. And that was arguably the best thing she ever did mm. because mm. I am completely self-sufficient. I, I, yeah. There's nothing I can't do either. I think that's why Yvonne and I were such a good team. There were no roles and responsibilities. We both did everything. It didn't matter what it was. We both did everything. And then because of the publicity and the fact that I, you know, inadvertently found myself in the media spotlight, mm. I've used my public relations and marketing training background mm. to be the voice of carers and the voice of my wife and other people in her situation, really since her story came to light. So what are you doing so in that vein? I, well, I, I spend a lot of time doing voluntary things for Alzheimer's Society, mm. a lot of media work. Mm. I'm, I'm a regular contributor to their Dementia Voice team, which meets every Friday and looks at some of the challenges for people living with dementia. I sit on the advisory panel of a charity called Dementia Carers Count, oh, I know which that. focuses mm-hmm. only on supporting mm-hmm. carers, mm-hmm. and it's a brilliant little charity. Mm. I run a support group in North London for elderly people, where we talk about practical issues and practical problems. And I get a lot out of that because I know how important it is, and it was for me, to listen to other carers. Mm. And so giving something back when you've been touched in such a huge way by something so devastating is the least I can do with my time. So I am busy. And then I have a couple of little part-time pocket money type jobs as well. So, you know, all of a sudden... You know, Fridays, I feel as psychologically tired as I did when I was working. It's just mm. crazy. And that's mm. good. Mm. I think that's wonderful. It It is very so, good. You sort of sidestep yeah. the question slightly, but I know it was an unfair <laughs> one because I was really, you know, it was a very personal question. But I, so often people don't get asked how they actually are, and it must be so sad for you as well. Let me answer it. Sorry, I will. In a In a quite crude way, and for people listening to this, podcast I hope they'll forgive me it feels like a very long bereavement but nobody's died mm-hmm. 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 I think a lot of people will um that will resonate with so many people when you put it like that yeah it, it's very hard to get on with my life as an individual my friends are still there my friends are phenomenal they're as phenomenal now as they always have been but ultimately I spend a lot of time you know particularly weekends on my own and I'm fine with that there are other things I'd like to do, but not on my own. Mm. Mm. So you did touch on this actually when we were talking before, because really, well, I don't know if you want to voice it and articulate it, but there's this very, my first ever podcast guest was Nula Suchet. And I don't know mm-hmm. if you know her story, but whilst visiting their yeah. respective spouses in a in a care mm-hmm. home, they met. Nula met John yeah. Suchet, was visiting his wife yeah. and, and Nula's husband was there and a lovely story in a way they sort of confronted this issue of how you move Mm -hmm. forward when you are suffering a sort of bereavement but the partner is still alive and it was incredibly difficult and you could hear it in Nula's voice as she told me about that and but then ultimately she and John did get together when their spouses had died and they've got married and it is a lovely sort of story but I suppose you touched on the fact that you'd like to move on you know if you're looking to the future this is such a difficult sensitive area it is and it's one that often isn't talked about but I do I have a a group of friends who are male carers Mm. and we do talk about this as men Mm. and some of them even with their wives in care homes Mm. uh, I can think of at least two of them who Mm. now have I'll use the word companions because I think that's the most sensitive word that I can find. Mm, mm. They have companions that they can go to the theatre with or go on holiday with Mm -hmm. uh, who fully understand the situation. No one's taking advantage of anybody here. Mm. We can talk about that as men, but it is a very difficult thing to talk about with anybody else, I think. We're all non-judgmental. 
we understand. So, yes, you know, I am fine. I'm very resilient. I've got lovely kids. I've got a gorgeous little grandson and who I look after twice a week. And then I need, frankly, two days to recover <laughs> yes. from that. You know, because I'm completely exhausted. Yes. But, yeah. you know, where I am today, it is what it is. And, mm. I'm, you know, mm. you just have to get on with it. Mm. Well, thank you very much for talking to me today, Trevor. I think as well as what Sainsbury's have done, your story does show what you've done and how prescient you were with, with how you decided to deal with everything. And I'm so pleased that you are now talking to other people in your situation because I think yours will be very valuable words for them. Thank you very much for all you're doing. No, no, there's nothing to thank me for. It's... Uh... I think I'd be abdicating my responsibilities if I did anything but this. But, you know, the way it all happened is, well, I look back on it, I, you know, it's crazy, really. Mm. Yeah, I think if my son had not posted that thank you to Sainsbury's, mm. I'm not sure I would be where I am today. No, isn't life funny? supporting people. Mm, sliding weird. doors. <laughs> really weird. Best, yeah. thing he, best thing he ever did. Thank you, Trevor. And good luck with everything. I want to say thank you to Trevor Salomon for being so honest and answering my questions so thoughtfully. It's sometimes easy to forget how difficult life is for some of my guests, who are, I think without exception, positive people, whose thoughts turn to others before themselves. I also want to say that Trevor has just been featured in the Eye newspaper talking about how Yvonne's care home persuaded 79 out of its 80 staff to be double jabbed against Covid. And I'm delighted to say that since Trevor and I recorded our interview some weeks ago, Yvonne's condition has greatly improved and she's now much more engaged. She's trying to talk and is very happy. When Trevor takes their 21-month-old grandson in to see her, she's desperate to stroke his hair and play with him, which is wonderful to hear. I loved the Salomon's Sainsbury story. It's really uplifting, and it's very refreshing to remind ourselves that sometimes we humans really can be very kind, and that not all news stories have to be negative. The other aspects of our interview that stood out for me were Trevor's belief that the best people to advise are other carers. I agree and how brilliant all their friends were in rallying round. I know firsthand how much that means. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast and then together perhaps we can further diminish the stigma increase the knowledge, and quash the myths surrounding dementia.